welcome to a special mega mailbag episode of the Canucks Hour. I'm Thomas Strance. I'm flying solo today, and we're going to take all of your burning Canucks questions on a key playoff game day. Game 5, New York Rangers and the Tampa Bay Lightning goes later today. Of course, we'll have the action for you at Sportsnet 650. The Canucks Hour, of course, is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca for more info. All right. Before we get into your questions, I want to talk Rangers. I want to talk Tampa Bay Lightning. And, of course, I want to talk anything can happen. Now, before we get into this, I want to be very clear with you. We are pre-recording this episode on Wednesday, so any lineup notes that you've seen on Twitter today won't factor into this next discussion, but in setting up this game, there's a few key things I want to note. Data point one, despite the zoo environment that MSG has provided throughout this Stanley Cup playoffs, and it's been a show, it's been great for the league, it's been great for hockey fans watching on TV, I'm sure it's been exceptional exceptionally fun to go visit and and watch those games in person. But despite that home ice edge, Vegas rates the Tampa Bay Lightning as the Game 5 favorites. Uh, That's a key data point there. Uh, It's very rare that a road team gets that type of respect. The back-to-back Stanley Cup champions, winners of 10 consecutive playoff series, they deserve that respect, surely. But it also reflects how the series has actually gone. And I know it's been... Touch and go for the Lightning at times. They were definitely staring into the abyss, down to no- down to nothing in the series, and also down to nothing in Game Three. And yet, they came back. They won, and then they manhandled the Rangers in Game Three. That second period from the Tampa Bay Lightning, and I know I said this on the show yesterday, but that second period from the Tampa Bay Lightning, there's games where you watch and you think that team is winning, and then. There are games that you watch where you think that losing team isn't just losing, but they're solved. And I didn't feel that way throughout game one. I I thought the Rangers had a pretty tough start, generated nothing in the first. But in the second period, and the underlying metrics won't show this, but the way that Tampa dictated pace, slowed that period down, um, stuck to their 1-3-1 with extraordinary discipline, took almost no chances from a puck management perspective, right? Any chances they took were with extra bodies back. And they just slowly and methodically probed and prodded and outweighted the the Rangers, imposed their will on the game, played comfortably with that one goal lead, and then struck. And and the Kucherov breakaway goal, it came right after a two-on-one opportunity that they nearly converted to, but it was just absolute control from a Tampa Bay Lightning team that has a higher gear than this Rangers team, and it's showed in this series. Which brings us to data point three. Here's the numbers you need to be aware of. The Rangers are still getting 940-plus goaltending in this series. The Lightning were at 880 prior to Vasilevsky's one goal against performance in Game 4. They're up to 914. Roughly what, we'd used to, what we used to consider league average goaltending, although the league average goaltending dipped significantly in the COVID era. That edge for the New York Rangers has them still ahead in this series by goal differential, even at 5-on-5. Five five. 
here's the things, here's the numbers, though, the reasons that I think Vegas is favoring the Lightning, the reasons that I favor the Lightning, the reasons why I think the Lightning will continue to do what they've done to so many Cinderella's over the years and, and be, you know, the wicked step, stepmother eff- effectively. Plus 35. That's the Tampa Bay Lightning edge in scoring chances to this point. Four games. Plus 35 at 5-on-5 five five by scoring chances, according to Natural Statric. Um, plus 5 expected goals margin for the Tampa Bay Lightning. 61% overall. That factors in the Rangers' scintillating power play. This has been a really dominant showing from Tampa Bay. Now, it's only been good enough for a 2-2 series tie. Vas- uh, sorry, excuse me. The other exceptional goaltender, Igor Shosturkin, has been incredible. All world. The best. The best you've ever seen. And Tampa Bay, I think, started this series out of rhythm following a long nine-day layoff. And they've still managed to, in my view, rather thoroughly dominate despite the goal events, despite the, the way that game one and two played out. Despite the fact that the Rangers have appeared to have them on the brink, I think this is a Tampa Bay Lightning team in total control. I think we're going to see that again in game five. And I think this series, you know, you only get one shot. To kill a team as good as Tampa Bay, it feels like the Rangers missed it. We'll see how it plays out. The Rangers still have a scintillating power play, more speed, and and the goaltending edge. Uh, that can be enough. That's certainly enough to win two of three. Anything can happen over a sample of two and three, two or three games. But the Tampa Bay Lightning look more elite to me in every phase. Uh, they do. They just are. And in particular, at the key phase, at five on five in terms of creating an environment where they're more likely than their opponent to score the next goal, all other things being equal, the Tampa Bay Lightning seem to have their number. We'll see how it plays out. It's going to be a fun game tonight. You can, of course, catch all the action on Sportsnet. Catch it all here, too, on the radio at Sportsnet 650. Game goes at 5 p.m. Pacific. All right. Let's get to the mailbag. We'll unfurl the bag (laughs) slowly but surely sift through some of the questions that our devoted listeners have sent to us. And thank you kindly for helping us fill some time today. We always appreciate your insights. We always appreciate your opinions. We always appreciate your questions. And while I won't be checking it, feel free to use the Dunbar Lumber 650-650 inbox as well. I won't be able to answer any questions delivered in that medium, but um, that's that's the nature of, of not live radio. Anyway. To your questions, we got some really good ones in, and I want to start with one that's a little bit navel-gazy, if you'll excuse my, uh, my indulgence. So we got a question in that I thought was really fascinating, and it wasn't really a hockey question, but it was a, a you know, how the sausage gets made <laughs> question in terms of the overall view that, you know, Things have changed within the Canucks front office. And and that as a result, the way that you are consuming this team's content and the way that my job has is flowing these days has also changed. I thought this question got to the meat of it and I wanted to address it because it was a fascinating one. So let's get to it overall. Here, here you go. It's from Fiddle Fishman. <laughs> Proton Cannons, his name on Twitter. And he says... The new management seems to have limited, and then in brackets, if not sealed, the leaks coming out of the organization. 
One, how does this affect you as a reporter? Two, how did the Canucks manage to accomplish this? Now, I think this is an interesting one because, you know, in in a lot of ways, this management group has functioned in quiet. Um, Certainly, there's been a focus internally, I I think stemming from Patrick Alvin in particular, on making sure that the organization does a bit of a better job controlling the flow of info. Now, this is a double-edged sword, right? I think one thing to note here is that it's one thing to control intel in the offseason when when very little is happening. It's another during the season when stuff happens, injuries happen, guys come up and down. Um, you know, moves get made, roster moves get made, guys hit waivers, and there's things to explain. There's things that you don't understand, or there's things that the media, especially those of us like me who track it really closely and and with high detail, might expect this to be the reason, but actually it's that. And, you know, there's this idea, like, leaks aren't a nefarious thing that occur. Just to to give you a, a look inside the curtain. Leaks occur because the organization feels that the club is best served by explaining the thought process or what has occurred or explaining a move to avoid there being confusion among the fan base, among the public, as to why things are occurring or why the organization is approaching things this way or that way, right? These are not people who don't have the organization's best interests at heart, the people who tell you stuff. They are people who believe that maintaining a good relationship with the media so that they can explain the thought process behind moves helps the organization flow and function. And that's going to be true, by the way. Like, there might be moments where this new management group obsessively clamping down on the amount of detail that gets out finds that, in fact, they need to be talking to the media more. Uh, But I'd also contest that, you know, the idea that there's limited or fewer leaks coming out you know, there have been a few examples of this organization operating quietly. Uh, you know, the Archdeep Bain signing, I don't know that we had a sense of that coming down. The Hamannick trade, that was a surprise, but the Dermot trade wasn't, and the Mott trade wasn't. Um, the idea of, you know, the, the Oman signing that occurred this week, you know, we didn't have a sense that that was a, a guy who was on the Canucks' list of targets, but, um, you know, that's neither here nor there. Even if we'd known, we probably wouldn't have reported it. I think in terms of the things that we have been able to be ahead of, you know, some of what Vancouver was targeting in terms of the belief in overall um, young defensemen in particular, the blue line being a, being a, a point of emphasis, uh, you know, uh, Linus Carlson's another good example of one that I think the media had a good sense on. Uh, the Bruce Boudreau thing came out of left field timing-wise, but I don't think the outcome was uh, was outside of, of what we sort of expected. Um, certainly once the press conference happened and the, and the questions began to flow, you know, we, there was a sense pretty quickly that despite that, Boudreau was coming back. Um, you know, and I, I think as the offseason, like once we get into the silly season, and this is management's first real silly season, We'll have a better sense, too, of exactly, you know, how well leaks are limited. Because the other thing to note is leaks don't tend to come from within the organization. It's that you hear things from outside of it and then are able to check it internally. Uh, we'll see, because the off season's a totally different stress test for a club than, you know, what they've dealt with so far. As for how this affects you as a reporter, one thing I would note, too, is 
you know, it takes you a while to rebuild relationships. This organization changed everything, right? I mean, over the course of a year, you basically saw a GM, two AGMs, uh, additional executives, uh, a coach, two assistant coaches, uh, you know, an additional assistant coach if you want to fire, if you want to count, excuse me, Scott Walker, um, you know, and, and a ton of support staff uh, jettisoned. So that does impact your relationships as a reporter, right? When you're around a lot, when you're on the road a lot, you, you have a chance to get to know people a little bit. And that certainly helps in, in terms of having conversations, whether they're on record or off record, um, you know, being able to quickly check news. Um, you know, it increases your social surface area and, and allows you to be a better newsbreaker overall, I suppose, even though I don't view that as sort of my primary task. So the main thing that it affects in terms of your job is you need to go about rebuilding those relationships, rebuilding a sense of trust with various people who you may never have met before. And that's going to take some time. And that's the other reason why I'd caution against this idea that, you know, oh, the ship's not leaking at all anymore. Well, we don't know. Like, of course it's not. There's, you know, only been six months and most of the organization was rebuilt during a time when, Omicron was raging and and restrictions sort of temporarily came back in terms of the amount of face-to-face contact we all had with uh with team personnel so let's see I mean we'll we'll have to see them the main thing is is that you know there's going to be a really big emphasis certainly for me and not not from a needing to get to leaks first perspective but just from a being able to have a good sense of exactly what the organization is thinking so that I can reflect that to the audience you know, I, I think that's going to be a work in progress in terms of building those relationships and rebuilding those connections. And yet, you know, I'd caution you to read between the lines, too. Uh, my my take on this team didn't change over the latter half of the season. And as we heard from Canucks management following the campaign, well, theirs hadn't either. Uh, if you think that's a coincidence, you know, you may not really have a good sense of exactly how this business works, right? You, you talk to a lot of people. Yeah, my opinions aren't just formed off of spreadsheets, no matter what <laughs> my detractors may have said or what you've heard on Twitter. Uh, I spend a lot of time talking to people, checking what I think, uh, making sure that, you know, I'm not completely coming out of left field. And so, you know, we'll, we'll sort of see where this goes in time. Um, but I don't know that, uh, I don't know that, you know, the extent to which this club has plugged leaks uh, is necessarily is necessarily, uh, like, I think it's being oversold. I don't know that the Benning Era's uh, management group was a particularly leaky ship either, to be totally honest with you. I I don't know that this club has ever uh, really made an effort to feed uh, local reporters. Uh, You know, you get what you get, and you put in the hard work to get it outside the organization, you know, and then you you check things internally, and that's kind of how things work. And I suspect that's how things will work again once those relationships have rebuilt. Finally, how did the Canucks manage to accomplish this? I mean, I do think there's been an emphasis on on uh, making sure that things don't get out there. Uh, I do think that, you know, Alvin in particular has been, like, he's guarded in terms of his own media comments. I think he's guarded, too, in terms of his instructions internally. And yet, I don't know that the Canucks have managed to accomplish this beyond the fact that we're all just still rebuilding relationships, rebuilding trust with uh, an entirely new group of coaches and managers and you know, I, I think in time you'll see things return to a very much familiar sense where, for the most part, the team breaks their own news. Uh, sometimes the national guys get it. Sometimes the local guys get it. 
and it's usually the people who know how to do it, right? It's usually the people with the biggest networks and the and the most relationships within the business who will get to the news first. All right, let's move on. Cap nerd question. Oh, you know I can't resist this. This is from Jim. He's Jim with a bunch of numbers after it on Twitter. With the move dates this year, example, the draft being on July 7th, do previous contract dates stay in effect? For instance, does a player's no-trade clause protection, which kicks in on July 1, uh, make him or another eligible player uh, eligible to be traded during the draft? So you get what I'm saying. Uh, A no-trade clause that was supposed to kick in for the 2022-23 league year, does that still kick in on July 1st, 2023, or does it kick in on the 13th of July when the market opens, that's what that's what Jim is asking, and the answer is the no trade clause and any such devices will kick in on July thirteenth. What the league has changed is when the league year starts, right? So the league year simply has been extended by thirteen days. It doesn't end on June thirtieth at midnight anymore. It ends on July twelfth at midnight. And so July 13th will mark the start of a new league year and all clauses that pertain to the 22-23 season will go into effect at that juncture as opposed to it being a little bit earlier. All right. We got a lot of questions about the blue line and we'll get to that in the second segment where we can really make, um, you know, take a ton of space to do so. Here's a question from Nux Talk Podcast. How good or high is Connor Garland's ceiling? Playing 16 minutes a game with little PP time, and he still puts up very impressive five-on-five stats. Yeah, you know, I love Connor Garland as a player, and there are teams around the league that would share my view. I thought Garland's impact at five-on-five was very close to elite, to be totally honest with you. His overall five-on-five scoring was through the roof. He's a personal offensive driver. Um you know, his assist rate, I think his primary, like, I think his playmaking is the most underrated part of his game. And, you know, I, I thought he did a tremendous job in sort of a sporting role. I think he could be great on the power play. I don't see any reason why he couldn't be a featured part of a team's first power play unit. And I don't see any reason why he couldn't be a top six fixture, although I don't know that you want Garland necessarily in matchup minutes at the very top of a lineup, right? I sort of see him as best suited to being a middle six guy who can drive a more, you know, sort of offensively calibrated second or third line and be a big power play contributor and a guy who sort of is primarily responsible for driving offense on his line. It's a useful piece. And the best part about it is that's about a $5 million market value piece, right? Like that's, you know, in fact, higher than that if he's really, really good at it, which I think Garland is, which means that he's good value. Where I think the ceiling becomes a little bit limited is, you know, Garland's size is obviously why he's a polarizing figure around the league and why some teams have a ton of time for him and some teams, like, love him, would pay a premium to acquire him, and some teams would not. Some teams would feel differently <laughs> about uh, about acquiring Garland. Um, and while the size to me isn't a huge concern, one thing that can be is... You know, there's a fair few microstats that are a little bit skeptical of Garland's ability to produce in the hardest areas of the rink, which tends to be emphasized further when the chips are down, right? Late in the season when the games get heaviest, uh, into the playoffs when the games become extremely heavy. Uh, In the Western Conference playoffs where, you know, we all know what the style of play can look like you know, as much as McDavid and McKinnon tried to make us forget that with the way that the Edmonton Oilers 
um, and Calgary Flames series, or sorry, and Colorado Avalanche series, but also the Calgary Flames series went down high-scoring shootout affairs. That, to me, limits Garland's ability to play at the very top of the lineup, or could anyway. I think there's a world where Garland, because of his toughness, because he doesn't care about anything else but winning, um, you know, I think there's a way that he can add to that portion of his game. And if he does, then I think you're talking about a true bona fide top of the lineup stud player. And that is his ceiling. But I do think it's going to take a more fundamental reimagining of his game. And I think he's going to need to figure out ways. He's already effective in traffic and he already wins more than his share of battles on the wall. But it's about finding ways to be as dynamic as he is away from the sort of home plate area, uh, in home plate, right in front of the net. And if he can do that, then I think you're talking about a a guy with virtually limitless ceiling. Right now, for me, he sort of falls in a tier below that. Uh, A really good middle six offensive driver with PP1 ability, uh, who, just because of how loaded this team is, hasn't really got that opportunity. All right, let's take one more, and then we'll move on here. From KMAC. Keelan Mack, too. Who are some candidates if the Canucks wanted to find a guy who can step in to the top pair Hughes partner role this season? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I'm not going to lie to you, everybody. This one's a tough one because the market for defensemen in unrestricted free agency, it is lean. I'm talking Scar, you know, when he was the sort of leader of the pride lands and everyone's ribs started showing in the third act of the lion king like that level of lean that's what we're talking about when we talk about the free agent class of defensemen in the year 2022 you know right-handed defensemen with top pair potential i mean john klingberg obviously but i don't know that that's the stylistic fit you're looking for in terms of a, of a quinn hughes partner and clearly, that's going to be well outside the Canucks' price range. Uh, Ilya Labushkin, your mileage may vary, but that would be a guy who played pretty big minutes for the Toronto Maple Leafs in the playoffs, uh, partnered with Morgan Riley. Had some, you know, I mean, he had some really good moments in that playoffs, uh, some scintillating passes on the rush in particular. But, you know, I don't know Then he's the guy that I'm sort of Penciling in is my favorite for that, particularly more than what Tucker Pullman made, which is what I think he'll net. Uh, maybe not, but I, I would expect him to. Um, you know, you're talking about guys like Anton Strallman, who's kind of, you know, just not really a difference maker at this top point in his career. Josh Manson, I suppose, but I really don't view him as a top-of-the-lineup option at this point in his career either. Nikita Zadorov, honestly, might be one of my favorite options uh, among the mid-range guys. I, I kind of think he could step into a, a bigger role and do more. And that's kind of it. Like, it, it kind of dries up quickly in terms of the defensemen you'd be looking at as, as guys who can play, you know, top of the lineup type minutes uh, and compliment Quinn Hughes, which takes a particular type of player. Um, you know, there's some guys that I have time for in free agency. Like I like Colin Miller. Um, you know, there's, there's a few other defensemen I like, obviously I love Chris Letang and that's not really a fit, but you know, there's, there's some guys, there's some guys I quite like. And yet, you know, I don't think there's a ton of really good options. And I, and I'll also tell you this, I know 
that there's not a ton of options that the Canucks are particularly enamored with. So, you know, here here's the quick, I guess, view of guys that I have some time for in one role or another. And, you know, I don't know that any of them would be top pair Quinn Hughes candidates. But but Braun, Justin Braun, played well for the Rangers in this playoffs, but he's a guy I've, I've liked for a long time. Yan Ruda is playing well for the Lightning. I, I like the idea of bringing any veteran contributor from the Lightning. I think that's... Uh, there, there's just organizational knowledge that matters. Uh, a guy who can speak up and be like, why do we do it this way? This is wild. This is, w- is never how we would have done it in Tampa Bay, and that sort of matters to me. Uh, Ilya Labushkin, um, you know, fine. Like, he's fine. I've always been a Labushkin f- fan. Like, I've always liked his game, but I thought he was overused by the Maple Leafs, and so I don't know that you want to make that same mistake. Michael Kempney. Hard-working guy. He's sort of fallen out of the league, but he's a guy who I think would be a good reclamation project candidate. Uh, you know, Marcus Nudavara would be a similar... Uh, he's dealt with a, a ton of injuries. We know that Bradshaw has a lot of time for him. Uh, on a one-year reclamation project, you know, sort of type of contract, I think that could make sense. Colin Miller's a guy I like a lot. Decent speed, big hand, uh, big shot, uh, right-handed guy. Played with the Buffalo Sabres last year. I, I like Mark Pesic still. I think Mark Pesic's versatility, his ability to play up front, his ability to play on the back end, uh, his ability to play the left side, I think that would be a, a good fit. He He's kind of the guy, though, that I'd like Mark Pesic most for as a partner would be Tyler Myers, not Quinn Hughes. Like, I like the idea of a Pesic-Myers third pair, if you could pull that off. Um, I, I think Pesic's the tight, like, he's, not, he's a non-physical, defensively reliable guy, so... If you're able to pair him with a guy who's a little bit bigger but is a huge freelancer like Myers, I think there's a fit there that makes sense in my mind's eye. Josh Brown, I guess, is sort of on the low end. Brown's a really tough guy. I think this team could use some additional sandpaper, truculence, whatever, meat and potatoes. Pick your pick your favorite hockey watchword. Brown brings that in spades. Uh, hardworking guy, good range, decent feet for his size. Uh Zadorov I already brought up, and then Brett Kulak would sort of be my favorite uh, of this group. And then there's a couple guys who I think, you know, are sort of lower end, um, you know, group five types who might be worth a shot, but you can't count on. Uh, Grant Hutton out of the New York Islanders. Uh, Chase Prisky, another guy who stands out to me as being sort of worth a look in the event that he shakes loose. And, And so, you know, let's react as a whole to those names. Uninspiring. Right, There's no guy there that you're looking at and saying, hey, that's a first-pair fixture for this team. There are no options like that on the market this year. The Canucks know it, by the way. They're, you know, of, of the guys that I listed, they might like a few of them, but I probably like them more than they do. And so one thing I think you're going to see the team try at some point, maybe not as a plan A, and, and of course it all depends on what happens elsewhere in the roster, and it also all depends on Tucker Pullman's health, uh, we know that he's been trending well this offseason, but whether he is in the lineup or not, uh, from the get-go, you know, I think we'll determine a lot of this too. But I do think you're going to see Oliver ekman Larson get a look on the right side. I suspect on the right side with Quinn Hughes. I think there's an organizational belief that while he handled the matchup minutes well, uh, he also can do more offensively. And playing on the right side with Quinn Hughes where he's always a one-time option you know, that might be the best way to get the most out of him, and he'd still be tr- counted on. Like, you'd still be taking advantage of his classy two-way abilities by having him be the guy who, you know, is kind of uh, counted on to be a little bit less uh, adventurous 
on a, on a Quinn Hughes pair. I, I suspect we might see that, and and I think we're going to see it pretty early, uh, and I think we're going to see it get a get a pretty long look, particularly if because this is still contingent on what happens elsewhere, the other dominoes that fall this offseason, particularly if the Canucks look at the market and determine that they can't find the top four righty that they want. And they do want another top four defenseman. They do want to find a situation where they can do a better job of limiting Myers and OEL's minutes in the event that both return because there's a feeling that they played too much and that and that one of the reasons why they faded down the stretch, one of the reasons why... You know, Myers looks so good in some moments and so chaotic in others is that he's played 25-plus minutes a night, and if you want to get the most out of him, he needs to be something like 18 to 20. And so I do think you're going to see an effort to strengthen this blue line, not just in terms of the long-term interests of the club, but also for next season. Uh, adding another top-four guy, I think, is, is a priority. It's just that guy might be, uh, you know, a left-side defenseman. So I, I wouldn't be stunned to see something like this for day one of training camp, assuming Pullman returns to full health. Something like, you know, uh, Hughes, Ekman Larson, right? X trade acquisition and or UFA left defenseman with Tyler Myers, Dermott with Pullman on the third pair, and then you've got like Hunt and Shen provided that they resign Hunt as sort of like your first layer depth guys. And then you have the other layers of guys who are hopefuls, right? If Jack Rathbone can force his way onto the roster, uh, you're happy about it, right? But it, but the the question for Jack Rathbone is not, hey, you're going to be gifted a spot in the lineup. It's can you dislodge Travis Dermott from his spot or dislodge Tucker Pullman because you could always bump Travis Dermott over to the right side. So that's sort of where I see uh, in my mind's eye the way it's written up on the whiteboard uh, for now. And we'll see sort of what else falls. All right, we'll get to more of your excellent questions on the other side of the break. Thank you for listening to the Canucks Hour. We'll be back to dive back into the mailbag on the other side on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour. We will dive back into the mega Canucks offseason mailbag with the remaining time we've got in the hour. Of course, the clock is ticking (laughs) on the Canucks Hour. But in this Canucks Minute, I want to remind you that Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. All right. So we got a lot of listener questions. And, you know, the questions were of the highest quality, as you'd expect. And so we've got a lot to get to. We're not going to be able to get to all of them, but I'm going to try and go lightning round here and get to as many as I can. Here's one from Jaywoo Honey Ribs <laughs> at Jaywoo Honey Ribs asks, will the computer boys in reference to uh, the Florida Panthers trio, the ex Florida Panthers trio of Reese Jessup, currently an amateur scout for the Carolina Hurricanes, Josh Weisbach, a programmer for the Columbus Blue Jackets and Cam Lawrence, a research and drafting consultant and a strategy consultant for the Columbus Blue Jackets. Will they ever come back and work for the Canucks? I'm going to say maybe, but you know, you never say never. Hockey careers are long, but no. <laughs> I think Reese is in a really good spot in Carolina with a very progressive organization and an organization that makes a ton of draft picks and has a very progressive view about how to staff the amateur ranks. 
And I think in Columbus, you've got Cam Lawrence working, you know, with, with Yarmo Kekalainen and, and Josh Flynn and a highly um, progressive front office with that is steered into a rebuild with a level of ruthless discipline almost unseen in recent years. Uh, I think there's, you know, a, a high level of satisfaction on all sides. And I think it would take a lot to pry any of those gentlemen out of their existing circumstances. So we'll see. We'll see. It would be a great thing for this team. Those are some of the smartest guys in this business, but uh, I, I wouldn't expect it. Um, here's another one from Evolution. Here's another one from Editor and Jay, who asks, would Canucks fans force Sportsnet to delete a tweet making fun of the Canucks if they lost in the playoffs? No. No. We might try and force the LA Kings, though. Remember when the LA Kings tweeted, like, you're welcome, rest of Canada, after the Canucks lost in the playoffs and Vancouver lost its mind for like a couple of hours. I remember it well because I wrote a big column defending it at the time at Canucks Army. Um, you know, and I think actually materially influenced that conversation internally with the Kings. Like, I think what happens is you do something in social media, right, or in team communications. Like, I don't know if you remember the first three hours after Gritty was unveiled, the mascot in Philadelphia, but everyone crushed it. And then the conversation turned. You have to outlast the initial reaction when people are like, oh, what? What, what is that? That's outrageous. You have to be willing to slog through what can be a really uncomfortable three or four hours when you try something different in this sport. And on the other side, people come to accept it or even like it. The LA Kings making fun of Vancouver, for example, in, in 2012 with that tweet, that was a, an example where... They tried something outside the staid norms of hockey Twitter. The initial reaction was negative. Some people rushed in to defend it, myself included. And all of a sudden, the conversation switched around it. And it was like the King's snarky Twitter feed became part of that team's identity, at least from a public-facing perspective. And now you see with the Vegas Golden Knights, and, and that's sort of an accepted medium. That's just a thing that we know is going to happen within this sort of world, within the world of, um, you know, NHL social media feeds and particularly on the team side. Um, I think this, I think it's similar with, you know, Canucks fans have been through this before. Uh, we were sort of the first, the first team in Canada to be a ma meaningful contender in the social media age. And things got really, really hectic around this club. Like it was a everyday battle <laughs> with this team taking bullets from all sides on social media, and it translated into how the team was actually covered, too. Uh, so, you know, I don't think so. I think Canucks fans have got enough runway uh, to have a little bit more of a sense of humor. I don't I don't know that we would have uh, forced media companies to delete tweets with our tears. Here's, a, here's another good question that we got in from Denzel Furry, who says, Do the Devils make a splash in the Metro with a Miller edition? And to this, you know, we'll see. I mean, I don't understand why the New Jersey Devils would trade the second overall pick for forward help, right? I mean, that's a loaded forward group as it is. There are additional forwards you could bring in to supplement that group without any acquisition cost, much less a, a premium acquisition cost like a second-round pick. Uh, I don't see that being, you know, the type of deal they'd make. Now, without the second overall pick, could they be a, a bidder for JT Miller? For sure. We know they're going to be aggressive. 
uh, there's tons of reasons to like the fit of JT Miller with Jack Hughes. Like, can you imagine? It would be a ton of fun. Uh, so, you know, could I see them being a potential trade partner for the Canucks in the event that the Canucks were dealing a top six forward or two or three this summer? Yeah, I could. But I don't think it makes sense to dream about, you know, Juraj Slavkovsky using that second overall pick. I think the uh, Canucks fans hoping for that pick need to accept that it would probably take more from Vancouver's side. Uh, and what do you think the New Jersey Devils would want from the Canucks? Well, I'll give you a hint. It's a franchise goaltender. <laughs> and I don't see any world in which that happens. Here, I got a lot of questions about rebuilding the blue line. I promised I'd get back to it. So let's get back to it with a question from Jennings 4. This is Jordan Jennings. He says, there might not be another Devon Taves out there, but could you maybe list one or two right shot D you'd feel comfortable trading a first or second um, for to elevate Hughes the same way Taves has helped McCarr? Uh, you mentioned a couple before, but they would they be worth two seconds? Well, you know, I mean, I, I think a player like Devon Taves is always going to be worth two seconds, right? I, I think a player like Victor Arvidsson is worth two seconds. I think that's one of the things you, one of the types of trades you can make in the event that you carve out the cap space to do those types of deals. But it's contingent on this club first carving out cap space and netting the types of futures they'd need to make those deals in a way that would meaningfully move the needle. Um, in terms of, you know, right-handed defensemen I'd trade two seconds for, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch. And and some of them play for teams that are going to have uh, cap crunches either now or, or in the near future. Um, you know, I, I mean, you start with Braden Schneider, obviously, Obviously, but I also look at Tampa Bay and wonder at what point did they need to make a really tough decision? And it's probably not this summer, but it, but it's definitely the year after because you'll have Cernak, Sergeyev, and Sorelli all expiring at the same time. They're going to have to pay them. And I do sort of wonder if one of Cernak or Sergeyev is the guy that ends up shaking loose uh, from that situation. And, and you know, Sergeyev can play the right side. Cernak is right-handed. Uh, I think Cernak's the better stylistic fit, but I think both are very worthy targets uh, and would be worth two seconds or more in the event that the Canucks had an opportunity to make those types of deals. Again, that's not a next year or this summer thing. That's a little bit further down the road. I am curious to see, too, what the fallout with Mackenzie Weger is. You know, the Florida Panthers have Barkov's extension kicking in. Uh, They don't have a ton of cap space. They have a ton of moves to make. I'm sure no one is happy down in South Florida that they got swept so decisively by a Tampa Bay Lightning team that didn't have Braden Point. And so I do think you could see a player like that potentially uh, end up moving in the in the near future. And, and, you know, again, I think you're looking at an acquisition cost that's more than two seconds. And I also think you're looking at a huge extension. Uh, but, you know, that's the type of player that I certainly would see as being uh, well worthwhile as a gamble. Here, here's, a, here's another interesting one to track, in my view. You look down the left side of the, the Toronto Maple Leafs defense, right? They re-signed Giordano. You've got TJ Brody, who, yeah, can play both sides, but nonetheless. You've got Morgan Riley ensconced in that spot forever. You've got Jake Muzzin, and we'll see where, where his health's at, but that's another guy. And so we have to go through four names before we get to Rasmus Sandin. Now, this is the exact same logjam that netted the Canucks' Travis Dermott, but I sort of wonder about... Sandine's availability long-term, right? He got injured toward the end of the season. He couldn't get back in the lineup. Um, You know, is there an opportunity there to potentially net a really good player 
uh, from a team that we know has cap issues, but that also, you know, probably would love to add a ton of stuff, right? Always needs to be creative in improving their team because of their perpetual cap situation, you know, caused by the the core group that they have and that is paid so highly. Um, you know, Sandine's not a player that's going to come cheap by any means, but, you know, we know that the Canucks may end up considering trading some really good players depending on their overall, you know, window, the timing of their window. And if the Canucks were to deal, you know, a really, really good top six forward, um, could that be an option for them? Uh, you know, that, not a right-handed guy, but a really premium defenseman. Uh, certainly that would be on my radar as, as a situation to monitor. Um, you know, I'd also be looking at guys in Winnipeg. Uh, you know, I'd expect Winnipeg to make a move at some point in the in the very near future. Um, you know, they've got a lot of money committed to their back end. Uh, they've got some uh, situations that are pretty active in terms of guys that may end up moving on. You've got Mark Shifley. Like, if the Winnipeg Jets decide to dismantle their team, is there a guy like a Brendan Dillon who, who might shake loose? Vancouver kid. Tough guy, plays the left, um, really, really good defensive player, but also adds a, a ton of sandpaper to a lineup. Um, you know, that would be an interesting one for me. Dmitry Orlov's a guy that's been on my radar as a, as a cap-shedding possibility for years, uh, remains there. I think he's only got one year left on his deal, so you're sort of running out of time <laughs> to make that type of deal, but that's a right-handed defenseman. Uh, John Marino, Marcus Pedersen uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, Mike Matheson, too, all guys acquired by and in two cases extended by Jim Rutherford and Patrick, you know, the Patrick Alvin Rutherford axis in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, that would be another guy that would stand out to me um, in, in the event that they decide to move on from one of those contracts. The, the Canucks should be all over it. So, you know, at, at this point, I've listed a ton, a ton of names and just goes to show you that I think there's going to be a fair bit of player movement. I do think there's going to be opportunities to upgrade the blue line. I'm not saying that the Canucks are going to be able to have a Rangers level of success, uh, certainly without an Adam Fox falling into their laps or, you know, Jacob Truba even directed himself toward New York. So, you know, I'm, I, that's not what I'm saying. I don't know that that's a realistic timeline for rebuilding this defense, but there are options. It's just going to take creativity. One, one other name quickly to throw out, Sean Walker, injured for most of the season uh, down in Los Angeles. Uh, they have a ton of depth on the right side. They have to carve out minutes for Dursey. They're going to get Doughty back. Uh, they've got Matt, Matt Waugh. I mean, at some point, there's a logjam there that's going to need to be fixed relatively quickly. Sean Walker might be my, one of my favorite players of that group anyway. Uh, that would be another name that stands out to me. All right, here we go. Let's get to a few more here while the clock winds down. I've got one that says, uh, it's from G92Nuck, and he asks, if the Canucks sign JT... What do you view as the more important part of the contract to get right? Cap hit versus term. Well, look, you always want to limit term. <laughs> like, I always think you want to limit term more than cap hit. But for a player like JT, you, you, you know, he gets eight years. He gets eight years. If he's signing here, he gets eight years. So you're signing him through his age 38 season. Maybe you can manage it down to six or seven. Maybe. But for the most part, if you're a top 10 scorer in this league, you have max leverage and you're getting eight years. And so, you know, um, yeah, finding a way to sign JT Miller through his age 36 season rather than his age 38 season would be my preference. If it, Like, I would value that above, you know, paying 9 versus 9.5 and by a lot. But I don't know that it's possible. 
guys that are top 10 NHL scorers sign max term deals. Um, so I just don't know that they'd have any flexibility. All right. Here's uh, here's one about Mike Yo. Hasn't Mike Yo proved himself to be a bad coach in this league? If this rumored addition to the coaching staff is made, how skeptical should we be about new management going forward? Zero percent skeptical. You know, I don't know that Mike Yo would be my pick for a head coach, right? Like, I don't, I don't, I would definitely be critical if the Canucks hired him as a head coach. But there's a lot of guys who I don't think a ton of as as head coaches who are phenomenal assistants, right? Like some of the best in the league. I'll, I'll give you a good example. Uh, Jacques Martin um, was never my favorite coach, but has been a phenomenal assistant over the years uh, in the Pittsburgh organizations and elsewhere. Uh, one of the best in the league. Uh, Rick Tockett's another good example. Was one of the best assistant coaches in the league. I don't know that I loved his work in Arizona. So, um, you know, you have to slot people appropriately too, right? And and Mike Yo to me would be um, a, a guy who I'd be critical of if he was hired as a as a head coach, but as an assistant coach, you know, there's a reason he keeps getting an opportunity, right? There's a reason, and it's not just old boys club stuff. It's that you know he's a hardworking guy. He probably is very bright. I don't know him personally, but he's probably very bright to have worked in some of the organizations that he's worked in. And, you know, I, I wouldn't have any problem at all if that was the direction the Canucks were to go in. Now, I've reported that, and I've heard that, the Canucks are definitely going to bring in an additional assistant. Um, you know, sniffing around it of late, I'm trying to decipher whether or not the club is just trying to be really coy about their intentions because... I wouldn't have reported if I didn't have, have it from a very, very good source, well-placed source, or uh, two, in fact. But um, I do think there's a, still a feeling-out process going on between Patrick Alvin and Bruce Boudreau. I know they're talking regularly about everything from the club's schedule to, um, you know, filling out the coaching staff, exactly what it'll look like. I do think that any hire will be Boudreau-driven. Uh, Mike Yo is a very Pittsburgh-like name. But if they bring him in, it's going to be not just with Boudreaux's like, agreement and assent, but Boudreaux's going to have to want it. Boudreaux's going to have to drive it. Uh, and I do still think there's a chance that the club – well, I, I, I want to phrase this carefully. I do still think the club is discussing the possibility of adding uh, that body. I think they've decided to do it for the most part, but I, but I think it, discussions are ongoing with Boudreaux about you know, whether or not it'll be a senior or junior person. Um, and I, and I, I just, I get the sense too, that there's at least some lingering organizational view that, uh, at least it's possible that it would be redundant, but I do believe that they will ultimately hire both a video coach and an assistant. Uh, I, I just, I got some pushback on that today for the first time, uh, after having reported it last week. So, um, trying to figure out what that means exactly. And, and we'll see, uh, as the weeks and months unfold. All right. Here's one last question that we'll get to, and then we're going to wrap this mega mailbag episode of the Canucks Hour up. All right. Here's, uh, it's from Tristan GRFX. He asks, will the Canucks continue adding to their front office this summer, specifically in the scouting and analytics ranks, and do you expect them to hire any additional women, as you previously alluded to? I think there's a real possibility. I think there's a real possibility that the club brings in additional women. I know that they were speaking to... Uh, at least one other candidate who, who wasn't hired. I mean, there's more than just one other candidate, but there's at least one other candidate that I think they were really hopeful of landing uh, and ultimately weren't able to in the fall. 
uh, or in the winter, excuse me, like it, someone someone who was involved in the Olympics, and you're seeing some of those folks begin to land with Montreal hiring Marie-Philippe Poulain, for example. So, you know, I, I do think the club has spoken with other candidates um, for a ver- variety of roles, and I'm still looking at that coaching staff position, right? Like there's no active coach in this league who is not a man. None. 32 teams, no women work on an NHL coaching staff. And there are a ton of candidates who would be more than qualified, more, more, more than qualified. And so I still look at that as a possibility. I still wonder if ultimately the organization goes in that direction in that particular area. Uh, analytics department, maybe we'll see an ad. I would be surprised at this point. I think that group's relatively settled. They added a couple of bodies in, in recently, obviously Rachel Dory being the higher profile um, but but Miles, and I can't remember his last name, was added to the department as well prior to the season. I think they're pretty happy with their numbers. I suspect that that will uh, stay constant here, stay, stay flat. Uh, as for the scouting staff, yeah, you're going to see a big ramp up. I think you're going to see one more pro scout added to, the, to a department that's otherwise going to remain relatively similar, and I think you could see significant changes in the amateur ranks once we're through this draft, draft process. For sure, the club is going to add a ton of scouting bodies on the amateur side. Uh, we'll see if all the bodies currently working in that department uh, remain. That's sort of the big question that I have there. Uh, I suspect they will. All right. I think that's going to do it for us today. Thank you for listening to our mega mailbag edition of Canucks Hour. Jamie and I will be back live tomorrow at noon. So tune in then. Thank you for listening to the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650.